Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 5, The Rough Hand of the Forest. You've probably heard the tale of Lincoln's ruined book. If not, here's the short version. During his time in Indiana, Lincoln borrowed a biography of George Washington from a neighbor named Josiah Crawford. But a major rainstorm came up, and water seeped into his cabin and damaged the book. Lincoln went back to Crawford, told him what happened, and worked to pay the damage off. This is Lincoln's cherry tree story. Unlike Washington's, the incident really did happen. It's a very old story and was widely known in Lincoln's lifetime. One version appeared in a book published in 1864 called The Pioneer Boy and How He Became President by William Thayer. It's a story for children that Thayer said was backed by correspondence with people who knew Lincoln. This is a dialogue from the book between Abraham and his mother, presumably Sarah Bush Lincoln. The two discuss what to do. Abraham says, quote, I have no money to pay him for it, and I don't know how I can make it good to him. Perhaps he can suggest a way, said his mother. Abraham, he ought to be paid for it. Sarah, of course he had, and he may want you to do some work for him, which will be the same as money to him. You'd better take the book to him today and see what you can do. Abraham, I am almost ashamed to go. He will think that I am a careless fellow. Sarah, never be ashamed to do right, my son. Thayer then sends Abraham to the Crawford's residence, where he confesses everything. Crawford tells Abraham he has corn to take in. He says, quote, Now, if you can help me out of this scrape, we can square the account about the book. What do you say to that? Abraham, I say that I am willing to do that, or anything else that suits you. Crawford, you are very accommodating, but you won't lose anything on that account. How much of my field of corn will you cut and keep the book for your own? Abraham, you mean the field of corn over yonder? Crawford, yes, you know just where it is. That is all the corn I have. I will cut the whole of it for the book, replied Abraham. Agreed, answered Mr. Crawford, and a very generous offer, too. I will not require you to do so much for the book, unless you choose to do it. Abraham, I choose to do it. Crawford, when will you begin? Abraham, tomorrow morning. The sooner I pay for the book, the better. Thayer says Lincoln worked at the Crawford place for three cheerful days and got to take the book home with him. He wrote, quote, It was to him one of the finest acquisitions he had made. He felt rich. His poverty was nothing. His humble home was as bright a spot as the Western world could boast. For an 1864 audience, this story was perfect. It had a moral lesson about honesty and a subtle political message about free labor. And again, it's true in its outlines. But those who were there or heard the story firsthand remembered something much more ambiguous, even ugly. 
John Pitcher, an attorney who knew Lincoln in Indiana, said Abraham, quote, would laugh about stripping all the corn blade off six to eight acres of corn to pay about a 25 cent damage to a book. And he added Abraham called Crawford nosy for his big nose. In the version told by Augustus Chapman, there's no laughter. Chapman said, quote, On his returning it to Crawford, he, Crawford, refused to receive it, but insisted on Lincoln paying him for the same, which Lincoln agreed to do. And as he had not the money to pay for the same, he worked for Crawford a pulling corn blades at 25 cents a day, and thus paid for the damaged book. And this is positively the only work he did on the Crawford place. He, Lincoln, felt that Crawford had treated him unkindly in regard to this book, and wrote some rude verses on the subject, in which he ridiculed Crawford in a most unmerciful manner. In other words, it's the story of a richer man taking advantage of a poor boy's honesty. And Lincoln was conscious of the wrong. He could laugh about it, but he made sure everyone saw his attack on Josiah Crawford. Sarah and Abraham Lincoln spent most of their adolescence working for men like Crawford, and always at the direction of Thomas Lincoln. Everything they earned before age 21 went to their father. Thomas had been rented out by his mother in a similar way, and probably saw nothing wrong in it. This was tradition. Historian Andrew Caton, writing about family relationships in colonial America in his book Frontier Indiana, said, quote, the organization of the household replicated that of the kingdom as a whole. Children, women, and slaves were dependents of the father and husband. They had virtually no public role other than to attest to the importance of the male. Women, children, and servants were not so much different from man as they were inferior, a status that they were taught from the beginning of their lives. Dependents were, by definition, weak, malleable creatures who relied on men to give direction to their lives. Caton goes on to note the American Revolution bred challenges to these arrangements. Abraham would have welcomed such rebellions, because he hated manual labor. It wasn't that Lincoln couldn't handle an axe, or an ox team, or a cradle when he threshed a field. By age 15, Abraham stood six feet tall, his shins constantly exposed by short buckskins. Dennis Hanks said when Abraham chopped wood, it sounded like there were three people working. William Wood said Abraham could, quote, sink an axe deeper in wood than any man I saw. But Abraham didn't want this life. He may have sensed he was reliving his father's early days, days that dragged Thomas into a life of hardship and poverty. Abraham earned his best money, 31 cents a day, slaughtering pigs. This is how historian Michael Burlingame described it. Quote, a hog had to be clubbed, doused in scalding water, and its bristles removed. Then one man held the warm, moist, greasy carcass, as heavy as 200 pounds, nearly perpendicular with the head down. Another man ran a gambrel bar through a slit in the animal's hock, over a string pole, and then through the hock. Holding the hog was a challenge. Abraham did this dirty, bloody, tiring work knowing the money he earned wasn't his. 
he bitterly resented it. Many decades later, he summed up these years with, I used to be a slave. In this light, his endless drive for self-improvement seems like a desperate attempt to escape. The odds were against him. Hardly anyone he knew would leave the log cabins of his youth. Opportunities were limited. Formal education was almost non-existent. Abraham had assets like his intelligence, his magnetic personality, and the young politician's ability to impress older people into helping him out. But poverty was an anchor around his leg. Robert F. Wagner, who represented New York in the Senate during the New Deal, and came from a background almost as dire as Lincoln's, absolutely hated the idea that hard work alone could lift someone out of a poor background. For everyone who rises to the top, he said, a thousand are destroyed. There were bright spots in Lincoln's adolescence. Despite the tensions with his father, family life was pretty good for the Lincolns in the 1820s. After Sarah Bush Lincoln's arrival, eight people lived in a cabin no bigger than a modern two-car garage. But to Sarah and Thomas's credit, the Lincolns and Johnstons became one unit. Augustus Chapman said, quote, The two sets of children got along finely together, as if they had all been the children of the same parents. Abraham became friends with his handsome and charming stepbrother, John Johnston. Others got along even better. Dennis Hanks married Betsy Johnston, Sarah Bush Lincoln's oldest daughter, and they moved to a nearby cabin. There are also some hints that Abraham had a flirtatious relationship with his stepsister Matilda, who was about his age. Thomas and Sarah also did what they could to get their children educated. The first Indiana school Abraham attended was run by a man named Andrew Crawford, no relation to the Crawfords we've met. As in Kentucky, this was a blab school, with children reading all at once. Lincoln's formal education gave him a lifelong habit of reading out loud, which he said helped him remember what he read. But Crawford also tried to impose some order in the noise. Nat Grigsby, one of Abraham's Indiana friends, said Crawford taught manners. He said Crawford, quote, would ask one of the scholars to retire from the schoolroom, come in, and then some scholar would go around and introduce him to all the scholars, male and female. Lincoln was known among his classmates for his good spelling. Anna Gentry, a student at Crawford School, said the teacher one day told them to spell the word defied and promised to keep them in school until they spelled it right. She said, quote, We all missed the word. Couldn't spell it. We spelled the word every way but the right way. I saw Lincoln at the window. He had his finger on his eye and a smile on his face. I instantly took the hint that I must change the letter Y into an I. Hence, I spelled the word. The class let out. I felt grateful to Lincoln for this simple thing. The public schools in Indiana were as unstable as those in Kentucky. Despite the charge of the state constitution, 
Indiana had no statewide system of education until the 1850s. Communities would put up dedicated school buildings, but as in Kentucky, these were largely subscription-based, dependent on the availability of a teacher and the ability of a family to pay anywhere from $1.75 to $2.50 per student. Crawford closed his doors before Lincoln spent a year in his classroom. Another year passed before a man named James Sweeney opened a school nearby. Sarah and Abraham only attended sporadically because it was a four-mile walk from their cabin. Another year passed, and a man named Azel Dorsey opened a school in Crawford's old place. Henry Raymond, the co-founder of the New York Times, either corresponded with or saw correspondence from Dorsey, which he included in an early biography of Lincoln. Abraham, Dorsey said, quote, came to the log cabin schoolhouse arrayed in buckskin clothes, a raccoonskin cap, and provided with an old arithmetic, which had somewhere been found for him to begin his investigations into the higher branches. Lincoln went to Dorsey's school for six months, and then, at age 15, his formal schooling ended. Lincoln was ashamed of his limited time in the classroom, but the modest schooling he got had value. In the log cabin schools, Abraham learned math, including multiplication, division, and ratios. He also learned how to write, a skill that was not always taught in tandem with reading. This meant forming letters and forming thoughts. At Crawford School, Abraham wrote lines condemning cruelty to animals, and he wrote longer essays at Sweeney and Dorsey's schools. Still, Lincoln's education came mostly through his own efforts. He read what few books he could get a hand on, opening them at all times of the day, in the early morning before field work began, or late at night after finishing his chores. John Hanks, a relative who lived with the Lincolns for four years, said, quote, When Abe and I returned to the house from work, he would go down to the cupboard, snatch a piece of cornbread, take down a book, sit down in a chair, cock his legs up as high as his head, and read. Sarah Bush Lincoln owned John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which historian David Herbert Donald thought informed Lincoln's writing style. She also had copies of Aesop's Fables and a book called Lessons in Elocution by William Scott, part public speaking guide and part literary digest. It gave detailed instructions on how to hold your arms and position your body, and it had a long section on acting out plays. Scott's book also contained lengthy passages from Shakespeare, who Lincoln admired throughout his life. In the White House, Lincoln once invited an actor to visit him and discuss the proper methods of delivering a soliloquy. Lincoln also read a book called A History of the United States by William Grimshaw, which covered the time from the European discovery of the Americas up to the annexation of Florida in 1819. This was a fiercely anti-slavery book. Grimshaw wrote of the first ship to bring slaves to Virginia in 1619, quote, How much would we rejoice could the cause, at this moment, be buried in oblivion, its effect be no longer traced? A Dutch ship from the coast of Guinea, having sailed up James River, sold to the planter a part of her Negroes, which race has been augmented in Virginia by successive importations and the natural increase until it exceeds the number of whites. What a climax of human cupidity and turpitude, 
What a glaring inconsistency between the public professions and the private actions of individuals are here presented for consideration. Now, note here, Grimshaw attacks slavery, but also seems deeply uncomfortable with the presence of African Americans in America. This last sentiment often walked hand-in-hand with anti-slavery thought, and we'll see it in Lincoln's early statements on the matter. Sarah Bush Lincoln remembered that Abraham would write down any passages from a book that struck him, and stared at them until he could fix them in his mind. If he lacked paper, he wrote what he needed to know on a board until he got paper and put the passage in a copybook he kept. Sarah said, quote, he must understand everything, even to the smallest thing, minutely and exactly. He would then repeat it over to himself again and again, sometimes in one form and then another, and when it was fixed in his mind to suit him, he became easy, and never lost that fact or his understanding of it. Abraham and his stepmother had a quiet congeniality that drew them ever closer. Sarah Bush Lincoln said, quote, his mind and mine, what little I had, seemed to run together, move in the same channel. Sarah understood Abraham's thought process and probably had more tolerance for his reading than Thomas did. She later told William Herndon that Abraham, quote, never gave me a crossword or look and never refused in fact, or even in appearance, to do anything I requested him. I never gave him a crossword in all my life. This is probably true in a general sense, but you can find exceptions. Joseph Richardson, a neighbor who knew Lincoln when he was a teenager, remembered Sarah asking Abraham to read the Bible to her. Richardson said, quote, Lincoln did not want to do it. At last, he took up the Bible and read, and rattled away so fast that his poor old mother could not understand it. She good-naturedly ran him out of the house with a broomstick. But otherwise, Sarah gets her stepson. Chapman said she knew early in their relationship that Abraham, quote, was a boy of uncommon natural talents, and if rightly trained, that a bright future was before him, and she'd done all in her power to develop those talents. Thomas Lincoln gravitated toward the more laid-back John Johnston, and they remained companions throughout Thomas's life. The fissures with his natural son, first opened by Nancy Lincoln's death, grow ever wider. They have increasingly divergent interests. Abraham is a bookworm, someone who will go up to the loft in the cabin and turn pages while guests visit below. Thomas, like his neighbors, sees reading as a kind of laziness. Thomas enjoys hunting. Abraham, for the most part, does not. The major break came from Thomas renting Abraham out. To Abraham, this was cruelty. To Thomas, it was survival. By 1825, decades of hard toil were breaking Thomas Lincoln. He was blind in one eye and was losing vision in the other, threatening the carpentry and cabinet making that brought in extra money for his family. Thomas adjusted as best he could. Elizabeth Crawford, Josiah's wife, who hired Thomas for jobs, said that he, quote, felt his way in the work much of the time. His sense of touch was keen. But to keep the family afloat, 
he needed his children's wages. Abraham didn't hide his contempt for this arrangement. John Remine, who hired Lincoln to pull fodder at his farm, said that Lincoln, quote, would laugh and talk and crack jokes and tell stories all the time. He didn't love work, but he did dearly love his pay. Remine also said Abraham once told him, quote, that his father taught him to work, but never learned him to love it. At home, Abraham tested the limits of his father's patience, reading long after Thomas told him to do a chore, for example. Thomas, an easygoing man, usually shrugged this off. Sarah Bush Lincoln said, quote, As a usual thing, Mr. Lincoln never made Abe quit reading to do anything if he could avoid it. He would do it himself first. But Thomas could lash out at his son. Dennis Hanks said that Abraham, quote, through pride and to tease his father, would cut ahead of Thomas to greet a visitor. This was a kind of impudence, and Thomas Lincoln would, in Hanks' words, knock him a rod. And when Thomas whipped his boy, Dennis said Abraham would, quote, drop a silent, unwelcome tear as evidence of his sensations. For his part, Thomas could find Abraham's behavior exasperating. He said, quote, I had to pull the old sow up to the trough, and now I had to pull her away. There were other sources of tension. Lincoln grew up in a community that believed in the unseen. Pioneers in Indiana had many superstitions, including, as Albert Beveridge recorded, quote, the howling of a dog meant the certain coming of death among them, and if a shovel or edge tool was brought into a cabin, there could be no doubt that a coffin would be taken out. Nothing must be begun on a Friday. A bird alighting at the window or flying into the house meant coming sorrow. Ghosts visited earthly scenes and haunted the unworthy. Witches, too, were real beings of evil. Dreams were forecasts of events to come. Faith doctors and charms were implicitly believed in. Some of this stuck with Lincoln, particularly the belief in the prophetic power of dreams. But with his logical mind and his need to break things down to their most basic elements, this kind of thinking probably underlined Lincoln's feelings of standing apart. He also stood out in his attitude toward religion. Throughout his life, Thomas Lincoln was a church-going Baptist. He helped build the Little Pigeon Creek Baptist Church, which opened its doors in 1823. Thomas and Sarah Bush Lincoln joined the church, and Sarah, Abraham's sister, did as well. Abraham kept his distance. He knew his Bible and attended services, but never made a formal commitment to the church. For the most part, the family seemed to tolerate this. Dennis Hanks said that, quote, When Abe went to church, he always could tell the text. As to his particular views on religion, I can't tell, but I don't think he held any views very strong. Sarah Bush Lincoln said Abraham, quote, had no particular religion. Didn't think of that question at the time, if he ever did. Lincoln's religious apathy was not unique on the frontier. William Herndon, for example, was never a religious person. There were issues of conviction and community at play. As we'll see, Lincoln had doubts about Christian doctrine, doubts few men in the pulpit could assuage. 
Many frontier preachers were poorly educated, and there was always talk of ministers who drank too much whiskey, like our old friend William Downs, or got a little too emotional, or dragged their sermons beyond the faithful's endurance. Burlingame quotes a clergyman named William Barton, who described the services thusly, quote, The preachers, Baptist, bellowed and spat and whined, and cultivated an artificial holy tone, and denounced the Methodists, and blasphemed the Presbyterians, and painted a hell whose horrors, even in the backwoods, was an atrocity. Abraham developed an irreverence toward these practices that only a person plunged deep into the waters of religion could. Once, when reading the Bible to some visitors in his parents' cabin, Abraham quietly interpolated Shakespeare into the book of Isaiah. Lincoln later told a story of an Indiana Baptist preacher, dressed in baggy pants and a loose shirt, who once took the pulpit before his congregation and announced, I am the Christ, whom I shall represent today. As he spoke, Lincoln said, a lizard suddenly ran up his leg. The preacher suddenly started slapping at the lizard, but kept missing, so he kicked off his pants to get it. Then the lizard ran up his back, and he started slapping at his back, and then the preacher ripped off his shirt. The congregation watched this in silence, until an old woman got up and said, Well, if you represent Christ, then I am done with the Bible. Lincoln engaged in more direct mockery. After hearing a preacher, he would mount a stump and imitate what he had just heard, which, if the humor of his late 20s and early 30s is any guide, probably involved a lot of mimicry and exaggerations of the gestures that the preacher used. He was good enough to draw crowds of children and adults to these shows, which would go on until Thomas spotted him and sent him off to work, as his stepsister Matilda put it. These performances gave Abraham an early lesson he could hold a crowd. Knowing this, he sometimes moved from the comedy into something more serious. Once, his stepbrother John brought a terrapin to one of these gatherings and threw it against a tree. This drew a rebuke from Abraham. His stepsister remembered, quote, Abe preached against cruelty to animals, contending that an ant's life was to it as sweet as ours is to us. As the 1820s go on, Abraham's life is on two tracks. On the one hand, he's grabbing anything he can read and is clearly looking for some way to better himself. Lincoln wrote two lines in Joseph Richardson's copybook, quote, Good boys who to their books apply will make great men by and by. He spent a lot of time at a general store owned by a merchant named James Gentry. Gentry's clerk, William Jones, ran a debating society in which Abraham participated, taking on topics like whether African Americans or Native Americans had it worse. He also started reading newspapers, an overlooked part of Lincoln's education. Historian Daniel Walker Howe writes that in 1822, more people read newspapers in the United States than any other nation on earth. Newspapers got special discounts in the mail and even local papers carried national news. William Wood, Lincoln's neighbor, said he subscribed to a relatively short-lived New York newspaper called The Telescope, which Lincoln read avidly. Wood remembered Lincoln writing long articles about national politics and temperance, the latter of which impressed Wood enough that he got it published. 
Lincoln would be an avid consumer of newspapers for the rest of his life, and as we'll see, he learned how to use them. Yet, he couldn't find the escape route he sought. Abraham's life circled around farm chores, plowing and picking, clearing land, and maintaining wealthy settlers' homes. The little he earned went into Thomas's pockets. He tried to launch his own enterprises. While rented out to another farmer, Lincoln rode people to steamers on the Ohio River, which earned him some money until a business owner on the other side of the river sued him for operating without a license. Lincoln, according to Sidney Blumenthal, argued before the Justice of the Peace who heard the case that he couldn't have violated the law in question because he only took passengers to the boats on the river and not to Kentucky. He won the case. This was Lincoln's first brush with the law, and he apparently read a copy of the Statutes of Indiana afterwards. In 1828, James Gentry hired Lincoln to take a trip with his son Allen to New Orleans to sell crops bound for plantations in the Deep South. When he returned, Lincoln asked Wood to help get him a job on the boats on the river. Wood said, quote, I remarked, Abe, your age is against you. You are not 21 yet. I know that, but I want to start, said Abe. For the moment, the young man remained in place. In 1829, Abraham helped Thomas start building a new cabin. But they would never move into it. That year, reports reached Little Pigeon Creek that the milksick had returned. This revived terrible memories for Thomas, Dennis, and Abraham. John Hanks, who had moved to Illinois in 1828, sent the family letters praising the soil. And Thomas, fearful of the disease that had already devastated his family, took the only step he knew. He sold all his land and animals, apparently at a loss. In early 1830, Thomas, Abraham, and 11 relatives took leave of their neighbors and headed west. As Dennis Hanks said, quote, Tom was always looking for the land of Canaan. Abraham's adolescence ended as Little Pigeon Creek receded in the horizon. He always bore the marks of his rural upbringing, both in his speaking style and his informal manners, and in more physical ways. During a political debate in 1836, a man named E.D. Taylor accused Lincoln of being an aristocrat. Lincoln replied that when Taylor was living it up, quote, he had only one pair of breeches, and they were of buckskin. Now, if you know the nature of buckskin, when wet and dried by the sun, they would shrink, and mine kept shrinking until they left for several inches my legs bare between the top of my socks and the lower part of my breeches. And whilst I was growing taller, they were becoming shorter, and so much tighter that they left a blue streak around my leg, which you can see to this day. If you call this aristocracy, I plead guilty to the charge. But Lincoln will never go back. Writing to his friend Joshua Speed in 1842, Lincoln said, quote, As to your farm matter, I have no sympathy with you. I have no farm, nor ever expect to have. In Illinois, his break with his father became complete, and he kept other relatives at a distance. Dennis Hanks later said, quote, When he was with us, he seemed to think a great deal of us. But I thought sometimes it was hypocritical. But I am not sure.
Farm life shaped Lincoln, but not into thinking agricultural life had any inherent virtues. His life in rural America was one of poverty, deprivation, and disrespect. It wasn't the life he wanted. Years later, Lincoln would read a book by a French philosoph named the Comte de Volney called The Ruins. His eyes would have fallen upon a passage that, perhaps, mirrored his own feelings about his early life. Volney wrote, quote, For naked in body and in mind, man at first found himself thrown, as it were by chance, on a rough and savage land. An orphan, abandoned by the unknown power which had produced him, he saw not by his side beings descended from heaven to warn him of those wants which arise only from his sense, nor to instruct him in those duties which spring only from his wants. Like to other animals, without experience of the past, without foresight of the future, he wandered in the bosom of the forest, guided only and governed by the affectations of his nature. Thus, the impression which he received from every object, awakening his faculties, developed by degrees his understanding, and began to instruct his profound ignorance. His wants excited industry, dangers formed his courage. Thus self-love, aversion to pain, the desire of happiness, were the simple and powerful excitements which drew man from the savage and barbarous condition in which nature had placed him. Next time, we'll diverge a bit from the narrative to ponder an important presence in Lincoln's early life, a woman who had all his gifts and none of his opportunities, Abraham's sister, Sarah Lincoln Grigsby. Mm -hmm.